You're listening to Irish Radio Canada and uh, recently we had a tour of Glasnevin Cemetery and part of that highlighted the Irish contribution going way back to Ottawa and the creation of many parts of Ottawa, uh, how there was a burial ground where it is now Parliament Hill in uh, what was Barracks Hill and that moved to Sandy Hill and has now been uh, re some people reinterred at uh, Beechwood. But an integral part of that history, of course, is the Rideau Canal and the Irish contribution to the Rideau Canal and even prior to that. But on the banks of the Rideau Canal, right down in the heart of Ottawa, the Bytown Museum represents a treasure trove of Irish history. And Grant Vogel is with me here. Grant is the Collections and Exhibition Manager at Bytown Museum. Grant, first of all, thanks a million for coming along and having a chat. Yeah, thanks for the interest. Um, as the last week uh, I got to share parts of um, Irish history in Ottawa that I wasn't aware of, things right. like that I didn't realise Herdman uh, was Irish, nor did I, and I mentioned this to some people I was talking to recently, and likewise an early mayor of Ottawa, Workman, 1860-1862, had an Irish background, yeah. and so as I was uh, tweeting during the week I noticed uh, I saw a retweet and a mention coming from the Bytown Museum said you know don't forget about <laughs> the, the us down here and I said yeah perfect follow on from what we just yeah. did and that was me as well okay <laughs> excellent <laughs> so, so now, now you we're here to follow on yeah. and hear about this wonderful interconnection and particularly I'm interested in hearing those little snippets of things like uh, Herdman and Workman that we're not all familiar with because we're all very familiar with Nicholas Sparks right. and O'Connor and Murray yeah. and you know Colonel Bay and the Irish contingent uh, that built the canal and um, but any little snippets that are treasure trove yeah, will be particularly interesting. Yeah, so I've been undertaking uh, research for a couple of years on the Irish in Bytown for, for various projects. Um, some of the first Irish settlers in the area, there was um, in 1818, there was a contingent of soldiers that settled uh, in Richmond, just west of Ottawa, from right. uh, the 100th Regiment. And then in 1823, uh, in the Ottawa Valley, we had settlers under Peter Robinson settlers, yes. who were mostly uh, Catholic Irish. Yes. And so when By started to build the canal in 1826, he was drawing some from the existing labor market of those settlements who were drawn to, to Bytown to, uh, to undertake the work, and then as well as new groups of immigrants coming essentially directly to the work site. And some of those would have been coming from the Lachine Canal. Right. Because the Irish had been coming over to Canada, getting work, building canals, and also in Upper New York and other places. Right, and there's quite a connection with the Lachine Canal as well with some of the contractors, Thomas Mackay, uh, John Redpath being two of the major contractors who had previously worked on the Lachine. So they did kind of uh, put out a call for workers in places such as Montreal to, uh, to draw people to this as then unknown depot site uh, in the middle of nowhere. And the Lachine Canal was completed, I think, just prior to the commencement of construction I of the Rideau Canal. I believe 1824. And yes. this is 1826-1832. Right, right. Yeah. So there would have been that little period where that was wrapping up and there was an offer to pay. those people would have been looking for work. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, most people who are interested in Ottawa history or Irish history do know kind of the standard story of 
the Irish pick and shovel men along the canal who are just here to slog it out and you know getting paid very little and dying in blasting accidents and of malaria and that kind of thing which is not untrue there were certainly a vast majority of the of the uh, unskilled laborers were Irish mm -hmm. um, French Canadian being the kind of an ex more prominent group however um, Research has brought up many names of those who worked in the skilled trades along the canal as well. Um, I came across two Irish uh, stonemasons, James O'Mara and William Brennan, who had both worked on this site here. Um, so that kind of debunks the whole idea that no, no, they were they were actually skilled laborers working mm -hmm. here of Irish uh, birth and not just the, you know the typical British mm -hmm. bias of English officers, Scottish uh, masons, and then the lowly Irish and French. Right. So that opened up a kind of door for me to keep digging, and um, I mean, just looking through the records of of uh, Colonel By's kind of um, staff, his master blacksmith James Tormey was Irish. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the soldiers in the Royal Sappers and Miners were Irish as well, and um, the his master carpenter, James Fitzgibbon, was Irish, mm -hmm. uh, one of his most trusted kind of partners. And so um, it really debunks that, that myth that they were just here to kind of move to do the dirt to, to, to do, do the, the dirty work. work. Exactly. Right. Going back to, the, to Richmond and the um, uh, regiment that were down there, of course, after the 1812, uh, the War of 1812, the, the British at that point uh, provided land uh, to what were uh, ex-Napoleonic wars right. and that's in order to try to protect Canada from exactly. another American invasion. Essentially a bulwark against right. other American incursions. Yeah. So that would, that, um, those contingents of Irish had been sent over after 1812 and were here uh, settling as both in military but then getting into farming as well. Exactly and so they were given uh, allotments of land based on rank mm -hmm. and certain uh, supplies, tools, and the settlement was given, um, you know, school, clergy, um, muskets, again, mm -hmm. to your point, to uh, act as that, that first line of defense should the Americans try and come up this way. Um, and so there was, it was quite a, an established settlement already bef by the time that the canal was being built but a lot of people would have been drawn from that area and again from the Robinson uh, settlers to, to find work in Bytown and then as the town grew in size and and also the, the scale of the work required that uh, the town have certain amenities um, that the workers would be looking for and so it drew business people, entrepreneurs right. and the like to the site. Now you mentioned that uh, when you started doing some research and you found records um, to me, this is always the fascinating part because one would have thought these records were always out there and readily available. Mm -hmm. So why is new material being uncovered? Yeah. Where were you finding the new material effectively? Well, or, a lot of uncovering it, it. Yeah. So a lot of it is there to to be found, and I'm sure it's been found before, but doesn't seem, at least from my uh, perspective, that it was really talked about. It was just kind of we've settled on this this story, right. this narrative of the Irish and French for the workers and, and the Scottish for the skilled masons and the English for the soldiers and the, the, the kind of head of engineering. So it seems to me that it's just a story that needed to be fleshed out more. So 
I actually updated one of the sections of our exhibition on the canal workers themselves a few years ago, and I started talking about this. I started talking about uh, what little we know of the families of these workers, because right. most of them were married men who brought wives and children over, and um, any meager rations that the workers got did not extend to their families and how those people survived and, and right. where they lived. Um, and so those stories, again, they're there. You just need to you just need to look for them, right? You and need to have the time and they, to, to borrow. Exactly. Right. And one of the, the most telling um, documents, which had been found, I believe, in the 1980s by a genealogist um, named McCabe, uh, known as the McCabe List, and a, a historian and professor over at Carleton, um, Bruce Elliott, published this list, and it's uh, in 1829, essentially, um, a survey was put out in the vicinity of Bytown, more or less saying, if we were to give you land and bring your family over to Canada at, uh, on like a loan, mm -hmm. would you be interested in doing that? Right. And within this survey, uh, we find names um, where the people are coming from, which family they have back in Ireland, okay. and that kind of thing. And of the 635 respondents, the vast, vast majority were Irish. Okay. So that document kind of tells us, uh, it gives us names, first of all, so they're not just laborers or the unnamed masses. They are, you know, James O'Mara and John Murphy, William age. Uh, yeah, oftentimes in age, or at least you know if he's married with kids, you right. kind of guesstimate. The other thing, too, is um, because you can access this document digitally if you're digging deep enough on, on the, say, even on a program like Ancestry, and you can see which of these people has signed their names and which has just Excellent. put an X. So that gives you a, a rough sense of literacy rates at least to a, a certain right. basic extent. And the document like that, did it give an indication of if they were bringing family where they might bring them from? Yes, exactly. So it would even have uh, names of relatives or next of kin down to the townland of where they were coming from. Right. Oftentimes it would have uh, a reference here in Canada or in Ireland saying, you know, they're of good repute. Okay. And in a few cases it even mentioned what their uh, trade may have been. So right. some Obviously, a lot of them were farmers, but uh, there was a few noted as uh, masons or other skilled laborers, or um, one gentleman's a brewer and a distiller who ended up being one of the earliest licensed distillers in Bytown, okay. uh, Ralph Smith. So uh, it was a really telling document, and for me, um, extremely valuable because the stories that we're telling here are really about the everyday people. I mean, it's nice to hear about, obviously, Colonel By and very integral to the story, but we don't really want to talk about the people that everyone already knows about. We want to talk about the everyday men and women and children who took part in the everyday stories that built this city. And so putting actual names, we can't put faces, unfortunately, right. but we can definitely put names to these people and start to tell their stories as... Uh, you know, individuals that took part in and to the McCabe list in context again. So, 1829 was a year after the construction of the canal started. Uh, it was a few years after. Yeah. 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 So, <coughs> at that point, there would have been a strong settlement, 
and while times were tough and people but people were working so um, they would have had a flavour of the winter exactly. and they would have had a flavour of the environment exactly. and they're saying yes we want to bring our families yeah, in. Yeah and I mean we've lived through Ottawa winters we know how harsh they can be and, and we're not living in shanties so yeah, uh, yeah obviously things were were an improvement for many many people to, to come here and find meaningful employment and the potential of having land of their own was obviously right. a massive draw. And also um, the the workforce themselves, I, I know f um, what you're talking about is very much, um, and what's important is the social history rather than just the chronological history. And right. it is the social history that really puts flesh on the bones exactly. of the chronolo chronological. And when you talk about shanties, of course, a number of years back, the Corktown Bridge was put in and um, the uh, getting it named Corktown as a reflection of that area was also an integral part of maintaining that history. Exactly, and that it was actually our former program manager, Steve Desort, who kind of helped push that, that uh, to have the bridge named Corktown, which is a very important history to us. And actually, one of our biggest partners, uh, Kitchissippi Beer Company, mm -hmm. just released uh, a stout, which is also at our kind of pushing also they uh, took the name of Corktown for that so okay. it's you know all these little things that at least it gets people talking or saying well what's Corktown and, and you can flesh out the oh, where did you get the name from exactly yeah so w whether you know the stories in their in their uh, detail or not that's one thing but if you can spark someone's interest and ask get get them asking questions and they come down here or they talk to somebody or they hear a radio program mm -hmm. um, that's kind of our goal right and of course uh, something like that is means that also when there's any type of an event and if a sponsor like that is there it brings people to the point where they will read the plaques exactly and yeah. uh, the, the connect the dots exactly. and really that's what this is all about is how do we connect the dots from 2019 to 1829 right and it's, that's literally 199 years yeah yeah so in digging mm -hmm. doing this research you come across more and more Irish connections um, I gave a talk at a conference in 2017 in Carlingford, Ireland, which oh, is the Dawson McGee Summer School. Right. And um, that talk was basically how the Irish contributed to early Bytown, not just the canal, but the fabric of the community. And in that, kind of based my talk on biographical sketches as opposed to, like you say, just a chronological retelling. And um, I've since given that talk again. Um, for the local historical society and you have people like uh, the first postmaster of Bytown was Irish the first school teacher was Irish and he was brought in by Lieutenant Colonel John By to educate his daughters and then opened up the first school right um, and then you had you know soldiers you had business people you had characters that are almost like semi-mythical like Mother McGinty who, who ran her tavern and was, you know, noted in uh, William Pittman Lett's kind of epic poem about Bytown right. as, uh, you know, swinging her arm with potent might. Right. Um, but she was a real woman, um, and I found a little bit of information on her, and she had, her and her husband had traveled to various canal sites and set up these, these taverns to kind of 
uh, cater to the to the workforce. Right, right. Captive audience, of course. Of course. So. <coughs> The um, Bytown Museum here on the banks of the canal, it's a beautiful stone building. Yes. It also, and again, the, the, while we talk in terms of the construction of the canal, the buildings that are alongside the canal are also part of that construction. And we actually never really talk about those. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to <coughs> note that um, so our, our building was built in 1827. Uh, and essentially what a commissariat is, is a storage house for supplies. So um, it was full of barrels of rations, um, black powder was stored in the vault, uh, workers would come and get their pay here, some kind of office administration type of stuff. But our twin building, which used to stand across the canal, was the office of the Royal Engineers. So those were the two main buildings on site that were contemporary to the canal. And uh, in typical kind of Georgian architectural style, when you would come up the first lock in Entrance Bay, the extremely symmetrical mm -hmm. view that you'd be looking at these two kind of plain twin buildings and split up the, ca the middle by the canal. Um, unfortunately, that building was torn down in 1912 when... Uh, the railway embankment that went across the Alexandra Bridge kind of had made it unstable. Which okay. is, every time I look over at those foundations, I'm kind of a little heartbroken at the fact that we've lost that building. But of course, heritage conservation standards have changed dramatically in the, since that time. Um, but yeah, it's like you like you mentioned, it's very important to think about um, the the UNESCO World Heritage designation of the Rideau Canal and its designation much earlier as a National Historic Site of Canada right. extends from here to Kingston yes. and it uh, encompasses not only the canal itself but all of the associated buildings including Fort Henry and so the history, while we tend to look outside and see these, this flight of eight locks it's 202 kilometers uh, through what was then swampy marshy ground and wilderness um, and building the fortifications and building any associated uh, like blockhouses and, and then settlements all along the way for the workers. So Grant, the reason Ottawa of then was selected as the capital is because it was removed uh, a distance from the American border and there was a concern there and in order then to provide uh, access to the St. Lawrence the canal was necessary. Right. Uh, we have this visual perception of Parliament Hill, the capital and everything else, and this beautiful building that's taking up a whole um, semicircle of land that looks out over the river. But it wasn't always Parliament Hill, that was actually where, um, that was the barracks. Right, so uh, shortly after the construction of the, the canal began, um, Colonel By requested two regiments of uh, the Royal Sappers and Miners, who were then um, barracked up on, of course, what was known as, to them as Barrack Hill. Very good sight lines kind of to protect uh, the canal's construction and keep an eye on things. Um, there was Barrack, a hospital, some ordnance stores and that kind of thing. Uh, they would, if, if needed, have uh, a jail cell or two up there. Um, but otherwise, anyone would have to be transferred to Perth right. um, to be jailed. So, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to think of um, that hill being anything but Parliament Hill and, and Ottawa don't often aren't able to picture something like that. And there was uh, a graveyard there. Exactly. And, and to me, it, it was kind of funny when uh, 
the construction for the LRT began and, and then the, the um, renovations up on on Parliament Hill because those two cemeteries are seen in, in a lot of old sketches and maps. And so when they said, oh, we found human human remains, I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it was kind of kind of funny, but uh, yeah, so a lot of, um, there was a, a burial ground on Barrack Hill and a lot of those remains when they began building Parliament were moved to, to Sandy Hill Cemetery or later Beechwood Cemetery. And um, it, the site was really occupied by the military until 1854 when many were called off to the Crimean War. Right. And then there was a short period where the townsfolk used it as a fairground and a, a trading ground and, and that kind of thing. But then by 1859, um, construction of Parliament buildings began. So. Right, right. Maybe we'll get to a point where it's time to go walkabout. Sure, absolutely. And uh, that way we can get a flavour of what someone can see when they're here. And um, we'll pick up the story as we get to the, the first piece. But in the intervening period, we'll play a piece of music. And are you familiar with uh, Robin Averill's uh, The Rita Canal? I am not, but I will listen to it. Yes, and uh, beautiful piece. It talks about the history of the, the, the it's from his CD, The Green Green Valley, and Robin lives out in Orleans. Uh, oh, I immigrated okay. from North Ireland many years ago, in the entertainment business, now retired, but composed this piece, beautiful piece of music. They came to a country across the sea, the need of the work to feed the families, so the Irish left their homeland far away. Only came to a world all water and trees In the summer they'd sweat and in the winter they'd freeze But they had hard cold stone to move They were digging a Rideau Canal all the way to Kingston Town Many a poor young Irish man lay buried in the ground They were digging a Rideau Canal and it seemed just like a dream To carve a waterway to the world for the coming century Oh, their hammers rang and the fires roared As we forced their way along the rocky shores We battled fever and sickness all the way And at night their music just filled the skies As they sang about home and family ties But they lived and died to moon stone They were digging the Rideau Canal All the way to Kingston Town Many a poor young Irish man Lay buried in the ground They were digging the Rideau Canal And it seemed just like a dream To carve a waterway to the world the coming century Now when I behold with shining eyes Everything they did I feel the spirit rise I know that their heart is here with me Oh, in the mist, in the morning, in the rain at night I hear them on the lake and when the wind's just right Knowing they did not labor here in vain 
were digging our little canal all the way to Kingston Town. And many a poor young Irish man lay buried in the ground. They were digging our little canal and it seemed just like a dream to carve a waterway to the world for the coming century. Welcome back, and we're here with Grant Fogel at the uh, Bicam Museum. So, Grant, where are we starting out? Where should somebody start out when they come in here, when they want to get a flavour of the Irish? Well, the, the way that our um, permanent gallery of our museum is laid out is obviously very chronological for, for ease of, you know, t retelling that story, and we do have a very great uh, audio tour that people can take in six languages, which okay. is, you know, kind of raves about. It's what, one of the things we're known for. Um, but in terms of wanting to kind of take in the story of the Irish in the history of Bytown and Ottawa, um, one of the first sections you'll come across after we, we kind of give you a background on why the canal was built was uh, on the canal workers themselves. And so this section, this case, and the few artifacts in, inside kind of tell the story of the everyday Irish workers, but also the fact that we were mentioning earlier about how many of them were skilled laborers and not just kind of the, the masses of pick and shovel men to, uh, to do the backbreaking work. So this section features um, some tools, mostly tools, some rations and barrels, and uh, a few remnants of tools that were found during the various excavations along the canal, mostly in the 1980s. But what was big for us when we updated this section was to not only to mention um, the fact that we've come across these names of, of Irish skilled workers and since then more, right. but also talking about uh, the men and their families and how they kind of endured this, uh, this process. You know, it wasn't, wasn't easy work and we, it's easy to look at the canal today as just mm -hmm. this beautiful idyllic setting, but that's you know, it definitely there wasn't was no always the case. And there were no backhoes. No, it was all, uh, a pulley would have been the closest thing to any technology um, in, in terms of uh, the construction of the canal. So it was right. very much by hand and blasting. And of course that caused and new wheelbarrows. Right. And, yeah. and before we go much further, so when someone comes in the door here and they want to start this section, we're on the first floor at the moment, so yeah. we're, we're upstairs. When you come in, and again a lot of people when they come into the museum, uh, if they're not familiar with what we do or if they're from out of town and they're just going to a boat cruise or something, they walk in and only see the first floor. Yes. And the first floor is a great introduction to why the canal was built, it's Parks Canada's exhibition. But uh, if we don't get people upstairs, they're really missing out. And it's come up a few times in the past, and not as much now because we're really pushing that. But the fact that if we ever see kind of like a less than a less than perfect review of our our small museum, it's people who haven't been upstairs. Right. So we really want people to know that there are two more floors of amazing exhibitions, and that's of the Bytown Museum proper. Okay. We, we do interpret the Parks Canada exhibition and we're down in the boutique, but we really want you to 
you know, it's two bucks. Yeah, we, and that, we really that was why I felt it was important to mention that to start with. Yeah. Instead of just coming in the door and wandering, yeah. you have to get upstairs it, to start. Exactly. So that's our mission when we see someone come okay. through those front doors is make sure they're aware that we have two floors of exhibitions and as well as the permanent gallery which runs uh, the history of Ottawa right till the end of the First World War, we have a temporary exhibition gallery which we rotate about once a year. Okay. The current exhibition is about uh, Ottawa during the South African War, okay. which is a period that most people aren't all that familiar with. We also have a community gallery which we allow artists, photographers, embassies, history groups to kind of book in and use the space for free. And what type of space is that? How much, what kind of square footage is that? So the community gallery is quite small. It's about 10 by 11 feet. It's okay. the uh, old Cooper's workshop, so the right. barrel maker's workshop. But it's um, a very manageable size space for smaller organizations who might have a few things to display or an artist who has a few paintings okay. of the that are related to Ottawa's history in some right, way right. and it really allows us to kind of uh, extend the mandate of the museum we can't obviously renovate that every year no but uh, to tell some stories that are bringing us up to present-day Ottawa is really the, the focus of that gallery okay. yeah now that was that was we threw that in there but let's yes. <laughs> let's, let's go back to the 1800s sure and um, I'm looking at a, a cup um, a silver and of course that to me would have been something that was associated with the mantelpiece in the big house yeah. um, and would have been a centerpiece. Yeah, so uh, Colonel By commissioned four silver trophy cups to give to the four main contractors or contracting teams okay. on the canal. Um, two smaller ones and two slightly larger ones. So this one was uh, is known as the Drummond Cup. So it was given to Robert Drummond who was uh, kind of in charge of um, Kingston Mills, more or less, and it's inscribed to him. Um, but several years ago, we had uh, an exhibition that was just kind of a highlights of our collection, and we brought together all four cups for the first time in many, many years from the various sites. Right. So there's there's one at the Red Path Museum. Um, there's one at the Chateau Ramsey, I believe, in uh, in Quebec, and then one that is held by the NCC. Uh, so we had brought them all together for in one display case for the first time in, in decades, and it was quite gorgeous. But um, yeah, this kind of tells you the importance of this undertaking and, and how, how much uh, was put into it and kind of although it's only really rewarding a few, very few people in the grand scheme of things, it shows, you know, the, the importance. Now we were talking about the tools and the artifacts, and mm -hmm. some of them were found during the 80s during various works. Right. But what we see are some um, wooden mallets, mm -hmm. and of course they, they uh, um, a shovel, uh, a pick, and uh, some chisels. Right, very common very common tools for the time, as well as a rum cask and salt pork barrel. So again, uh, the commissary at our building that we're standing in now would have been full of, of such barrels to, so to kind of the words said there was a cooperage here then as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So and then um, right behind us as well, if we want to keep on the, the Irish connection, yes. is a uniform from one of the Royal Sappers and Miners, Joseph Coombs, who was born in Wexford. Um, very interesting man. He actually fought 
with the Prussian army uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. I think he was the only British uh, sapper engaged in such a way. Um, so when he arrived in 1827 uh, on the works, um, he decided to, after returning to England briefly, decided to stay in Bytown. Right. And he became quite a prominent member of the community. I believe amongst his other things, he was a pharmacist and a Methodist preacher and part of founding of Bytown's first fire company, a fire brigade. Nice. So a very interesting character and this piece is very rare as well because often the uniforms were either worn until they were in tatters or returned to the government as, as the rightful owners. So okay. uh, to have a piece like this that was essentially found in an attic is, uh, is quite important to us and then to know whose it was in his story is also very important. Uh, the name Coombs is not um, appearing on any buildings or anything around town or streets. No. And that again is what we you tend to associate is so that something like this and this is why again it's important I guess that we start to, to learn more about the unrecognized. Right, exactly. And I mean in terms of the community of Bytown around the canal at that time Coombs certainly would have been known to most okay. in his position, but it's one of those things where he's kind of been forgotten. And again, yeah, you, you don't see, you see a Mackay Street yes. right, and, and that kind of thing, and you see Booth, yes. uh, but you definitely don't see Coombs. And so it, it's not always the case, but it often is that uh, these, these people get lost in, in the mix. Okay. Yeah. So where do we go from here? So uh, the permanent gallery continues to, once the canal was uh, completed, the next major phase in, in Ottawa's history was uh, the lumbering industry. So it actually began um, earlier, but mostly was based on the other side of the river with uh, Philemon Wright's settlement. Um, but again, when the canal was finished, there was all of a sudden people looking for work um, who had who had employment up until then and so it's a really important period in Ottawa's history where there's that transition from what was supposed to be kind of a military settlement and very quickly it was realized that the threat from the Americans was kind of fading right? and then becoming kind of an, an industrial settlement and hub for uh, the Ottawa Valley timber trade. So many many workers did find uh, employment in that trade. Off, others often would move on to other towns or maybe other canal sites, but that's kind of what we're what we're looking at here. And so we've got tributes. You can hear some of our our music uh -huh. <laughs> above us. Tributes to the to the um, lumber workers, and specifically Joseph Montferrand, who's kind of again a semi-mythical character in the Ottawa Valley timber trade. Um, but the, the one way that the... I, 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 I do want to draw attention here because I right. see hobnailed boots. Exactly, yes. And, and they are nailed uh, in that the points are out of them. And of course, uh, uh, in latter years, hobnailed boots didn't quite have the same amount of protrusion of nail. Yeah, uh, but, yeah. And those are genuine? They are. So they're not um, specific to the kind of 1820s, 1830s. Those are kind of early 20th century examples. But, um, yeah, there, there's this legend that uh, Montferrand would do a backflip and kick his hobnails into the roof of a pub, and that was the signature that he left behind. Okay. Um, so that's 
you know, again, that semi-mythical. Because again, the hobnail boot was the working man's boot. Yes, exactly. And uh, walking across slippery logs, floating down the river, yeah. and yeah. trying to stay on top of things. And then just behind that, I see it, there's a large photograph, and I can only imagine that um, there's a percentage of those that would have been Irish born. Oh, absolutely. And it's uh, so that's a photo of one of J.R. Booth's um, cookhouse rafts on the Ottawa River. So. Um, now, when you mentioned that, of course, while we're here and we're talking about the, the Irish uh, con uh, connection in the Bytown Museum, mm -hmm. and logging is very much part of the story, while the building of the canal is very much part of the story, but then logging is very much part of the Irish story then as well. Right, and the way that um, it really connects in with kind of one of my favorite uh, parts of, of Ottawa's history is... Um, those workers who were in search of jobs after the canal being completed uh, often had a hard time beca because the French Canadian workers in, who were mostly carpenters and uh, had already been established in the, the timber and logging industries mm -hmm. were already in those jobs. And so there was a period of Ottawa's history where, or Bytown's history rather, where it was known as kind of the most violent town in British North America because workers were competing for jobs, they were often removed from family, especially if they were logging, they were up in the, up in the bush for months mm -hmm. on end. Um, you know, there was, there was ample, um, uh, ample um, opportunity for, for drink right. and for conflict to arise and, uh, and then of course there was no police force at the right. time. So there's a period of Bytown in Ottawa's history um, where these groups kind of banded together and there was almost kind of a gang warfare kind of mentality going around. And uh, one of the groups, the Shiners, who were mostly Irish Catholics, uh, were often <coughs> in conflict with um, French-Canadian right. um, laborers and, and loggers. So this one section that you see on our second floor kind of discusses that uh, discusses some of the conflicts that was brought to Canada from overseas and the, the old biases. Uh -huh. But we, it's not just the you know Catholic Protestant conflict. It's conflict for work. It's again primitive living conditions, dangerous working environment, removal from family, uh, impartiality from those in power. That all kind of made brought together and brought this conflict to yeah, light so yeah, it's a pressure cooker mm -hmm. and so there was a period um in the mid 1830s to mid 1840s before the establishment of the first kind of uh proto police force in ottawa called the shiners wars right. when um, people were being thrown in the river shot at their windows broken um there's many instances of people being um, attacked, businesses being attacked, and then people getting broken out of jail. Like a very, very incredible time that when people say Ottawa is always a government, boring government town, I just have to point this out to them. And this, of course, is also before Confederation. Absolutely. So this is in the 1830s, 1840s. In 1848, there was uh, the establishment of the Bytown Association for the Preservation of the Public Peace. Okay. That was the first kind of police force that started to kind of settle things down a bit. But when Ottawa was chosen as capital, and again it changed from Bytown to Ottawa, I like to call it kind of an early rebranding exercise uh -huh. because 
if this town was going to be the capital, they, it couldn't be associated with that past that right. was still very recent in, in memory, right? right. So that, that kind of change to Ottawa rebranded the, the town, but also it kind of pushed the history of, of Colonel By because his name was lost with, okay. with the name of the town. And it wasn't until the Women's Canadian Historical Society of Ottawa, who are our predecessors, uh, began in 1898 and started retelling those stories. And then Colonel By was kind of brought back into light and right. was venerated. And then now we have the statue and the monument. Um, but with that rebranding to, to, to Ottawa, we kind of shifted our focus away from this early history of laborers and of uh, and of the workers, uh, working conditions, and um, this conflict towards a government town. Right. Yeah. Right. So moving on from here, are we are we staying on this floor? Or do we? Uh, we could we could move upstairs. Okay. So, so we'll we'll just pause for a moment and we'll move up. Yeah. So, Grant, we've arrived up on the, this will be the third floor. Right. So, while we urge people to make it to the second floor, we're saying definitely you have to come to the third floor as well. Yeah, and if not for anything but the, but the architecture, you know, the original beams of the building are still here, and uh, it's just an amazing space to be standing in the oldest building in, uh, in Ottawa. So, the third floor does start with kind of Bytown, making that move towards Ottawa and becoming more of a, a government town. Um, so this floor discusses um, the first kind of city councils and the mayors. We have one of the um, early mayor's chairs on display here from the 1850s. And uh, actually the last mayor of Bytown, who was one of the very early mayors of Ottawa, was uh, Irishman James Friel as well, so okay. there's that connection, right? Um, and a number of other uh, of other politicians and mayors and city councillors. Um, the um, there's a I don't know what the correct term for one of these. Things yeah, so there, there's kind of a three three maquettes or models that uh, right. are kind of a time lapse uh, showing the history of Bytown in Ottawa, and usually what we try and ask people is what what one building is in all three and of course it's the building yes. you're standing in right um, so the first model is 1832 the canal has just been completed you can see our building here and the twin building across as well so this is Barrick Hill 
and yeah. you can see the associated buildings and garden plots and that kind of thing. There's another cemetery there. Um, and then the as we move on to 1855, when Ottawa is renamed Ottawa, you can see the growth, especially in Lower Town. I'm looking at something I didn't know existed, and that is that there seems to be a large lake right. uh, up until between 1832 and 1855, um, just what would be south of, uh, I guess, the Laurier Bridge. Right, yeah. so that, that is the turning basin. So the idea being that shipping that had come from the river would come up the locks. There were numerous docks and warehouses okay. around the basin. They would unload, turn around, and go, and down. go back out okay. if they weren't heading uh, to okay. Kingston or further afield. And then this uh, little kind of stream was known as the bywash, which kind of controlled overflow levels okay. uh, from the canal and the basin. It went right through Lower Town. If you're familiar with the bridge, at the Rideau Center that crosses the bay. Mm -hmm. That would have been the McKenzie, the McKenzie Bridge. Yeah, so roughly where, where it ran through to Lower Town and then out to the Rideau River. Okay. Um, but the interesting thing about the Turning Basin, which you'll see, this is 1918. It's gone. It's, it's all but gone. So the um, eastern portion was filled in when the rail lines came in. Okay. And then the western portion was filled in, I believe it was around 1827, 1828. There were a number of forwarding houses and um, warehouses and that kind of thing around this area for shipping up in the canal, but that was filled in <coughs> in the 18, 1920s. So it's all but gone here. But the interesting thing about this model is that now you have the train station, you have the Chateau Laurie in its first mm -hmm. iteration, and Parliament is still being rebuilt after the fire of 1916. Right. Right. And obviously the growth is exponential compared right. to when Ottawa was declared capital. And while we're talking about the Irish involvement in early Ottawa, the Irish involvement in the rest of Ottawa as it developed, of course, is another story. Mm -hmm. um, so going back then to where we're here and the artifacts that we're looking at on the third floor. Yeah, so we it kind of moves through... Ottawa uh, becoming capital, and then we do discuss in some detail kind of Victorian era Ottawa, um, more more higher society types, you know, with, with leisure time and money to spend, um, and cabinets of curiosities and that kind of thing. So we've got uh, a good selection of paintings and everyday items, but of course the Victorian era um, <clears throat> was known for its period of, uh, of mourning through Queen Victoria and so we've got items relating to that and um, just you know early museums were essentially cabinets of curiosity mm -hmm. where they had hundreds of pieces in a case with very little interpretation so we, uh, obviously we expanded upon the interpretation aspect of it but mm -hmm. we wanted to get that feel across in this space and um, in the last couple of years, we've done some updates and conserved some paintings. But we also added this painting quite recently of, uh, of the Ottawa River in the 1880s. And you can see Parliament Hill. You can see um, the Basilica yeah. and the Pian Point. But what's telling is how busy the river is with, with industry. Right. Um, and it's just a great, a great painting. And the more you look at it, the more characters you see kind of 
kind of popping out. Now you mentioned that um, this aspect of the, the museum would kind of be reflective of the successful. Um, and you also mentioned earlier on that there was the perception that the Irish were really only navvies, but that the Irish also were in positions of um, um, engineer, mason, carpenters and all these. So some of what might be up here, um, the Irish who had been at the, let's call it the um, professional level or the, the trade level, um, they would have been successful as well and they would have had this type of lifestyle. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, earlier you mentioned uh, Nicholas Sparks, of yeah. course, but then you have like, people like J.R. Booth. He's, yeah. He was Irish born. He was essentially one of the wealthiest men in Ottawa right. and one of the most successful businessmen, but also one of the most generous philanthropists. So, um, yeah, absolutely. In every strata of, of early Ottawa, they were, or the Irish were had their presence well known. Right. But you did mention also, and of course, the, the um, traditional conflicts did travel across the Atlantic as well. Yeah. So while um, some of the uh, perceptions and uh, attitudes it would have made it challenging for many of the Irish to succeed in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, if you um, thinking about where we're standing currently, which is the discussions of Canadian Confederation, and we do touch on the Fenian raids, and then we do touch on, of course, the assassination of Darcy McGee. So that kind of brings that up until the time period of Confederation. And we are famous or infamous for having the, the death hand of Darcy McGee. Um, so in that time period, often public figures or figures, uh, wealthy people would have a mask made mm -hmm. after their death. Um, McGee was shot in the head, so um, they made a casting of his right hand. Okay. And uh, many people think that's a pretty fitting tribute for such a, a prominent uh, writer. Yes. And so um, that is one of our kind of more well-known artifacts. And then we do have some mourning ribbons, one of his, his books and some photos and a plaque. But um, a copy of this hand is in the pub up on Spark Street. Okay. But also another copy is over in Carlingford in the Darcy McGee Heritage Center in, in his hometown. Right. And uh, our friends over there who come and visit on a regular basis, and I've been over once, uh, we have a really great relationship in kind of bringing up the story of Canada, <coughs> excuse me, and the Irish in Canada. And McGee, for instance, is relatively unknown. Um, in his hometown, yes. And when he is known, he's he's not venerated in the way that he is in in Canadian history. So it's uh, really great for us to have forged that partnership and start to kind of expand on the story. And again, it's, it comes back to what I was saying very early on in, in our discussion, and that is that you know there are names out there that are well known, like right. Sparks, but there are a whole lot of names that are not. Yes. And then the Irish story. In, of Canada is better known in Canada than the Irish story of Canada exactly. is known in Ireland. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then, uh, so from that period uh, onward, the museum uh, discusses in fairly great detail the fire of 1916, which destroyed the center block of Parliament. Right. There's some really amazing artifacts from that period, so items recovered from the fire. Uh, oddly enough, they created some souvenir pieces from... Um, material recovered from the fire, such as ashtrays, souvenir blocks of wood taken from door, door jams. Right. 
Um, but the, the obviously the most prominent piece is this uh, Royal Union flag that was flying the day of the fire and was rescued. Right. So um, we've recently updated this exhibition because in 2016 we had a temporary exhibit on the fire that was much more uh, in depth. Oftentimes when we do a temporary exhibit we're taking something that may be only represented by one case in one panel and, and expanding upon it. So even this photo here, which of course is a print, um, is from a glass negative that we have in our collection and it shows the fire being fought. You can see right. the pumpers, you can see this, the water. Yep. The Victoria Tower had fallen and it's kind of encrusted in ice being uh, February. Yep. A very powerful image. And of course to walk into this room and it's obviously dominated by, the, by flag. the flag. Indeed. Which in, uh, in reality is displayed backwards because we're showing an inscription because the flag was used at the relaying of the cornerstone um, in 1916. And so we want that inscription to be visible. We're joked that if the queen ever shows up, we might have to turn it around. Right, <laughs> right. Hopefully, hopefully she wouldn't ask us of that. But, yeah. um, and then the, the, the um, permanent gallery kind of ends with the South African War, which I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. as our temporary exhibit, as well as the First World War. So we don't really delve into battles and generals and troop movements. That's um, our friends at the, the okay. Canadian War Museum are yep. the ones that are the experts there. But we do have a really interesting collection of items from the South African War, and many, many Ottawans took part in, uh, in that conflict, and as well as the First World War. And the reason being that um, the Women's Canadian Historical Society was founded in 1898, and in the following year, um, their their husbands and sons and and fathers were going off to okay. war and they brought things back with them and were collected. So um, we have a number of items, personal items, helmets, canteens, watches, a pocket Bible, and all of these items are related to Ottawans that took part in the war, who all of which can be found on this uh, kind of portrait of the men of the first contingent. And of course, looking down through the names of that, there will be many names. I see Brady um, and uh, Bennett. Um, lots of what would be a coal man. Uh, lots of Irish names. Fleming. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So many of these, uh, yeah, as they point, the boys in khaki. Exactly. Those would have been of Irish heritage or Irish born also. Yes, sure. Um, so there are times of the year where it is particularly poignant for the Irish community and the Irish, what would be the Irish story. And August is one of them because is it August Monday is when there is a celebration every year. Right. And so as part of the civic long weekend and as part of what is known in Ottawa as, as Colonel By Day, which is the, the Monday, um, every year we have a Celtic cross ceremony. Mm -hmm. So down across the locks, um, there is a very large Celtic cross that commemorates um, the workers that uh, perished during the construction of this canal, which is a very important aspect to recognize because, again, it's very easy to look outside and see an idyllic leisure uh, waterway, but in fact that is not its intended use, nor was that the case until quite recently, in right. fact. And so it does commemorate um, the, the thousand workers, roughly, who, who died during the construction, as well as their families and the loss that they would have incurred. Um, it's interesting to note that the symbols on the cross are the wheelbarrow, the shovel and pick, 
uh, the mosquito for malaria and uh, blasting, mm-hmm. which were kind of the main reasons for worker right. accidents and deaths. Um, and there is another cross at the very far end in Kingston as well. So right. it's an important time of year. We try and tell that story whenever it comes up, but certainly on uh, on the Colonel By Day Civic Holiday Weekend, it is something that we, we look forward to kind of commemorating. And on those days, the door of the museum here is open to the public. It's one of the days for you, you offer freebie. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I understand on the cross, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, the commemorative language is in, there's English, Irish, French, and uh, is there Algonquin, Algonquin right. on it also. Right. So it's, it's respectful of the, the traditions. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, and is there any other time of the year? I, I know I said Colonel By Day is a particular day, but are there any other high points in the year where uh, the Irish focus is, is something you really pay attention to? Well, we certainly um, do uh, commemorate it around St. Patrick's Day, mm-hmm. of course, and often we take part in some small uh, portion of the parade or that kind of thing. Um, around Labor Day, we definitely want it, and, and May Day as well, we also talk about uh, laborers and workers. But um, especially through our online presence, mm-hmm. where we like to highlight aspects of our collection or events that are taking place or kind of this day in history stories. They, I mean, the Irish and the contributions to Byton and Ottawa come up on a very regular basis. And again, um, the talk that I, I gave in Ireland was given it recently for the Historical Society, mm-hmm. and I'll be giving the same talk again in the fall um, for an Irish genealogy group. Excellent. So um, it's something that people are interested in, and it's something that is very, very common and woven throughout the entire story of Bytown and Ottawa. So Grant, in wrapping up, what we should you mentioned the online presence. We should give the um, coordinates of the online presence. Yes, yeah, so our website is, is bytownmuseum.com. And that's Bytown without an E, right. not to be confused with the, the cinema. Um, but we also are very active on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, so it's at Bytown Museum. And we're posting content every day about what's going on at the museum, new acquisitions to our collection, stories of the day, and just um, raising the awareness of the history, the unique stories that we tell and also what we have in our collection and things that you may not be able to see on display because obviously only about 5% of our collection is ever on display at one time due to space, Mm -hmm. but we try and expose people to as much of what we have as possible through through our online. And so when we were working on digitizing the collection and making it available to the public and spreading the word online and, and in publications, and so we just really want people to come down and make it upstairs to the next floor. And the space that you mentioned that's available for um, uh, groups if, if they wish, who sh- should they contact you or is there an email yes. specifically? Yes, yeah, so they can contact me directly and on our website under our, the exhibitions page there is a page for the community gallery uh-huh. where there's a small call for proposals form where you can fill it out and send it in to me and then we look at it as a team and see where it fits into our schedule. Right. Usually it's booked up kind of a year or so in advance right. because it is free space yeah, yeah. and quite yeah. a busy and, 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 and in a very prominent part of town and a very beautiful part. So exactly. I, yeah. exactly. So it's a, a great space for people to use and it's really advantageous for us to help tell stories of Ottawa past 
1918. Right. Well, Grant, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's been fascinating and yeah. interesting. And uh, as the, the exhibitions change, certainly if there's any major find in the future, we'll love to follow up on it. But it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, I mean, thanks so much for your interest.